0: You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production.
1: I walk my dog dark and early every morning. I stay on the main road. The owls hoot in the deep forests on either side of the street. The trails are pitch black, and I've had one too many morning bear encounters. On the road, there are some streetlights and very little traffic. In the still of these morning walks, the missing men are in my thoughts. I love the solitude of the open road, but there's a loneliness here too. And when a car approaches, slowing down as it nears me, sometimes as I stare into the headlights, I have a moment of panic. Palmer. This is Island Crime Season 2, Gone Boys, and you're listening to Episode 7, If the Missing Could Talk. Most of the men I've focused on in this series were known to spend time alone on the roadside. I've been able to spotlight a handful of cases, but I'm only scratching the surface. As I gather information about the missing men... I'm looking for elements that could tie their cases together, but I'm also aware of how different each of these men are, how their circumstances are, in many respects, quite varied. And so, while I consider their disappearances as a whole, I'm also intent on keeping the focus on these men as individuals. Victims are too often overshadowed by the offenders, especially in serial situations. And it seems to me these men, men who are officially only classified as missing, who we may never know whether they are homicide victims or not, are even more invisible. Daniel McDonnell is a man whose disappearance drew very little public attention. He was 44 years old when he vanished from Port Alberni in December 2016. There is no Facebook group dedicated to his case, next to nothing online at all. I've been in contact with his brother and three of his friends. One of them tells me they fear speaking publicly about Daniel. I reach his father, Colin, for an interview over FaceTime from Thailand, where he is currently living. H- Hello, is this Colin? Yeah,
2: good morning. Or good evening,
1: there. Good evening. Is, is it an okay time to just talk for a few minutes?
2: Oh, yeah, actually, this is a perfect time in the morning for me.
1: Daniel grew up on the east coast of Canada in Nova Scotia. As a teen, he moves across the country to be with his father after his parents' marriage ends. Here's how Colin characterizes his son's personality. Danny was a high, strong person. You know, he had a really good heart
2: and sometimes he uh, got overexcited and he had a, a, a pretty bad temper at
1: times. Daniel's mood swings and temperament lead Colin to believe his son is struggling with a mental illness.
2: You know, I think he was bipolar. I seriously think he was bipolar, but would not go and get help. You you know, it's too bad that people, many people don't, well, they they don't accept that they are that way, right? And I mean, you could never explain to Danny that he was like that because it was all the world was at fault and not him. He would never accept that some of the things that happened were his his own doing and not the responsibility of the rest of the world.
1: And yet, Colin doesn't think his son could have taken his own life. Did you have any sense that he, you know, was unhappy enough to to consider harming himself?
2: Uh, no, I did because. Like when he was in a good, like sometimes he would phone me, right? And he would be really nasty on the phone. The next time he would phone you, he'd be, you would think that he was the nicest person on the planet. So he had really two different sides to him. But never enough that, you know, like I've never seen him hurt anybody. You know, he got in a few fights over, over the years, but, uh, you know, never ended up in jail for anything or he had a nasty streak that he would call people some nasty things sometimes when he got in, in in one of them moods right but it would not last long and it would go away and then he would phone you in a, in a day and be as nice as pie after being not so nice the, you know a few days before
1: and what's more he says Daniel was never out of contact with his family for very long
2: never 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 the uh, the longest that The longest time that either me or my other son had not heard from him would be probably two weeks or three weeks at the most.
1: Colin says Daniel is happiest when he's fishing. Daniel's Facebook page reflects that love. There are pictures of Daniel smiling on boats, out on the water, on the deck with a haul of fish. Daniel buys a commercial prawn fishing boat in Port Alberni. He will later sell the boat. Colin believes Daniel sold it to the fish plant. Missing men Brandon Kearney and Ian Henry were once employed at the fish plant in Port Alberni. I wonder if they knew each other. I ask Colin if the names are familiar to him. He tells me they are not. Just before he goes missing, Daniel's life is up and down.
2: After that, he bought a commercial fishing boat for a for, uh, uh, con fishing boat in uh, Port Alberni. Then he sold that, I don't know why, because uh, he loved fishing. And he spent, sm- he spent most of the time, after he got kicked out of the Union, he spent most of his time on commercial fishing boats. Yeah, And he got tied up on drugs for a while. And then, just before he went missing, he returned because we had a house in Nova Scotia. We lived in um, on Kennedy Street in Nanaimo for many years. The, uh, and then when when my uh, um, when my wife died, then I moved back to Nova Scotia, where my grandkids and family were. He uh, built a house there. So the year that he went missing in two thousand and sixteen, he came back. And spent a couple of months with me and Chad, my other son. And uh, he wasn't getting along very well then. And then he went back to British Columbia and went back on the fishing boat with uh, with the native Indians there.
1: A little context is likely helpful here. In Canada, on both coasts, there has been significant tension between indigenous fishers and commercial fishermen like Daniel. At the time I interview Colin, those tensions are extremely high on the East Coast in Daniel's home province. Angry mobs swarm and ransack a lobster pound used by Mi'kmaq fishermen. A massive fire destroys the building. All this is in my mind as I listen to Colin telling me he believes Daniel's disappearance may have been a result of a conflict between his son and Indigenous fishers on the West Coast.
2: What I seriously think happened to Danny, the, and so does my other son, because uh, Chad was talking with, with Danny, I think, a couple of days before, before the fishing trip was finished, and he was in
3: an argument
2: of some kind with the natives aboard the boat, right? Right. And Chad, my other son, said, Danny, you can't be doing that. You can't be saying that things like that to the natives. The, uh, and that was the last time my son spoke with him. And that's the last time anybody heard from him.
1: Colin believes his son may have gotten into a fight with fellow fishermen and that his life could have come to an end out on the water. The investigating officer in Daniel's case has not agreed to an interview with me. But Daniel's father says the RCMP do not believe Daniel came to harm out on a fishing boat. I wish I could turn back the clock, speak to these men, really understand what is happening in their lives before they're gone. In this series, you've heard voices of family, friends, community members, legal authorities. But missing, truly absent in all of this, are the voices of the men themselves. Men on the margins, struggling with trauma, addiction, mental health, and poverty, have become increasingly invisible. And it's possible that social exclusion has made these men vulnerable to a violent end. So in this episode, I ask, what is it like to be a man on the edge?
4: Meet Jake. Sure, uh, my name's Jake Thomas.
1: And Josh.
4: I'm Josh Bahari.
1: Today, they are helpers, using their own hard-earned experiences to lend a hand up to other men.
4: Oh, I participate with Wardhouse House in community outreach, where we just go and just connect with people, give people a little support, just to show them that there's people out there that are thinking about them, I guess, and... Yeah, sort of a facilitator in a way, and peer supporter.
5: I'm the project coordinator for Heads Up Guys, which is a men's mental health website. Uh, I've been a mental health advocate for a long time, and I became one after having my own experiences uh, with depression.
1: Jake lives here on the island. Josh is in the Lower Mainland. Both of them were men who struggled with the kinds of issues the missing men wrestled with before they went missing.
4: I've been accessing the mental health system for. I'm 56, so say 46 years. So my entire life uh, have been in and out of psychiatric care. I grew up on Vancouver Island. I had a like uh, was grew up single parent household with six children. Didn't finish school. Got into microbrewing, which I did for almost 10 years, and had a really successful career at that. Like did really well, and then in my late 20s. I got acutely mentally ill, and uh, my life sort of unraveled.
5: So I was in my last year of university. At first, I was just starting to get much more stressed out and nervous, but everything just started taking extra weight, and I was really worried about things all the time. And then I noticed, like, my mood started to go up and down. But at first, I just thought, oh, wow, I'm having, like, a early, like, moody time now. I didn't think of anything like, more serious going on. So I kind of just ignored what was happening. Yeah, things just continued to get worse. And I continued to, like, hide what was going on from everyone around me, um, which is, like, the worst thing you can do, basically. I just felt like I didn't want to look weak or didn't want to look like I couldn't handle things on my own.
1: I've asked both of these guys to open up about their own experiences.
4: Well, for me, I was living with my wife and kids, um, I was stay at home with the kids. I stopped interacting with my family. I start going on missions. Like I uh, often just stopped sleeping and started experience mania, and it just it caused upheaval in my family. I landed in hospital. This is just one time. Got arrested under the Mental Health Act at urgent care here in Parksville because they thought I was high on meth. It's so, it's like, it's very difficult to remember those things. Like when you're mentally ill and when you experience psychosis and stuff and are really wound up and and stop sleeping, I can just, just remember how difficult it was for me to form thoughts and how I felt like I was living in a movie, like exactly like I was living in a movie. I thought everything was scripted and the people around me were scripted and it's horrible. I I witnessed it in the community every single day.
0: Yeah. Things started to get worse. And then eventually that led me actually to trying to attempt to end my life. Um, and I was like incredibly lucky to survive. But in like the aftermath of that, uh, I was actually in the hospital because I sustained uh, yeah, several like very serious injuries. But when my family came to see me, uh, I actually felt like happy for the first time I'd in I don't know, six, eight months. And I was, yeah, relieved and happy to see them, and that was kind of just like a little glimpse of what feeling normal felt like, um, which I didn't think was possible
5: anymore.
1: These are two very different men with windows into worlds offering a glimpse into the lives of men I can't talk to.
5: I guess I got to the point where I was wanting to like end the pain that I was in because um, I couldn't figure out how to feel how to feel better, and I was just stuck feeling like a really intense amount of sadness and stress, like all the time on and off throughout the day. But part of that is also like wanting to to escape and wanting to
4: get away from the world. Everyone suffers lonely. I mean, everyone suffers the loneliness. That's the probably worst part of it.
1: I ask both Josh and Jake to reflect on what it is about being a man that can make it harder to get help and easier to fall through the cracks.
5: I think mostly I was just embarrassed. Like pretty much every other problem I'd ever like encountered in my, in my life was just something I would like think about and try to figure out a solution to. And I was used to trying to do things on my own and doing it that way. And then when it came to depression, like the more you think about it actually like feeds into it and you can get caught in like a deeper spiral that way. So that's why things ended up getting worse without me being willing to like reach out. A lot of the kind of stereotypes around wanting to look strong or not wanting to look weak. Yeah, like worried about looking weak to my friends. And a lot of that
0: is kind of ingrained in me as part of my upbringing and trying to be like a tough, uh, self-resilient man. It's so you see how
4: people just can fall through the cracks so easily, like we'll lose track of people for weeks at a time and realize we're the only people interested in where they are.
1: Those close to the missing men have talked about a kind of self-exclusion they observed in their loved ones.
5: Like I knew I was starting to like look more tired and I was starting to look stressed out, things like that. So then whenever my friends asked me to make plans, I would just uh, like come up with like a made up excuse. Uh, I just kept telling them, oh, I have like a stomach flu, I can't come out. But because of that, like I kept on isolating myself further and further until I wasn't, yeah. Like I hadn't seen my friends like in person for like several months actually. And then I imagine like if you're in a more or less urban area too, that it's even probably easier to withdraw and isolate. Like I was ashamed that I was dealing with depression. So I was hiding like everything. They just sort of go and you wonder where
4: they've gone. And sometimes they come back and then there's the people in the community written in the paper that just go and never come back. It's no one really tracks people that I know of, you know? Um, I can see how you can just wander out of a community and never come back. And if your family's not actively connecting with you or friends that actively connect with you, it's so easy to just completely fall under the radar, you'd think, eh?
1: Jake and Josh talked to me about judgment. Judgment of others and judgment of themselves.
5: Uh, In terms of looking at myself, I'd be like, like, I'm fit, I'm healthy.
0: Like, what the hell's wrong with me? There must be something wrong with me. But in reality, I was just, like, depression is, like, a very severe mental illness. And it's not, like, like an attitude or doesn't reflect on, like, my character or things like that. Because you can be, like, the strongest guy. You can be uh, the most outgoing. And you can still be dealing with a lot of issues underneath. Like, sometimes you find people who are the most, kind of, like, outgoing social people. Are actually some of the people who are uh, more severely depressed because they have a lot of, a lot of like acquaintances and kind of like more loose social connections, but they don't have many like deep, meaningful connections in their life.
4: Yeah, you see that person walking down the street and you don't, yeah, yes, maybe that is mentally ill. Maybe that is drug induced psychosis. You, know, you just don't, maybe that guy is having a diabetic problem. The main message I would say is the biggest risk we pose to other people is when we prejudge their conditions. I think when you see a guy walking down the street, maybe the question you should pose to yourself is, you know, I wonder what his story is.
1: It's easy to try and view the lives and circumstances of the missing men through our own lens on the world. But Josh cautions that it is not necessarily the right approach.
5: I guess one thing I want to say is that like, I know for myself, when I got to the point where I did try to end my life, a lot of people, like, they'll say, like, why did somebody choose to, to take their life or why, why did someone choose suicide?
0: I guess one thing I want to point out is that, like, in that state, I wasn't really capable of making, like, any decisions. Like, I, was, I wasn't thinking clearly. So, when you're, like, thinking about, like, what actually happened to these missing men, and if you're thinking it might have been suicide if that is the case that you could be like, why did they do this? Like, or kind of even like blame their decision. Because I know like from my personal experience, like when I got to that point, I wasn't even making like same rational decisions. You know, I can see much more clearly now. At the time I thought hundred percent, like I was making like the right decision.
5: Like I had all the information and I was making a choice. All the information I had and all the thoughts in my head were
0: completely biased and skewed negatively. Like I wasn't even myself really at that point.
1: And from Jake's perspective, he sees how the mix of addiction, homelessness, and mental illness can lead to a total break with reality itself.
4: A couple of weeks ago, we're down under the Orange Bridge and there's this guy and it looks like he's had a perfectly made bed, kind of like rectangular shaped and he was covered up and he was reading something and then a couple feet away was another guy uh, constructing a, a pipe out of a piece of a horn or wood or something. I couldn't tell what and a chunk of metal and then there's someone else taking apart what looked like VCR motors and they're just all intent in their activities and a woman was there with them too and she was doing her makeup like just sort of nonchalant and then she kept correcting us on the pronunciation of her name because it was kind of affected the pronunciation and I could almost sit down and paint this scene like it just seems so they seemed so like everything was so normal for them under the bridge with it dripping with rain and moisture and and uh It was like witnessing the aftermath of like, boom, like an explosion and everyone's sitting there still kind of stunned and they're trying to continue on as usual not realizing they're missing limbs and other body parts.
1: As I gather interviews for the podcast, I speak with the wife of one of Vancouver Island's missing men. I've seen her husband's face on posters on the trailhead where I walk my dog. The picture shows a smiling, likable-looking guy. I learn the photo is taken not long before he vanishes. I record a gut-wrenching, emotional conversation with her. But a few days later, she reaches out to me. She asks me not to air the interview. It's too soon. I respect that request. Of course I do but she also tells me she's open to me including the information for context. And here is one of the most important things I want to share from that interview. This man suffered a significant trauma which altered the path of his life. And that is true in many of the missing men's stories. Trauma, like addiction and mental health, is a recurring theme in this series. I'm struck by how this man's life, once filled with promise, took a tragic turn. How a charismatic, well-connected, beloved man finds himself frustrated, angry, unable to cope. Now, just gone. We'll be right back after a quick break. Reaching men is the goal of Dr. John Ogrodnichok.
3: My name is John Ogrodnichuk, and I'm a professor of psychiatry at UBC and the director of the psychotherapy program here. I'm also the founder of Heads Up Guys, uh, which is an online resource that supports men with depression.
1: Heads Up Guys was launched five years ago with a specific target, improving men's mental health by engaging them online.
3: Men don't utilize health services nearly to the rate that they should, particularly mental health resources. Also, what's clearly uh, recognized is that men have a very high suicide rate in the range of three to four times uh, higher than women. And so, Clearly, what we're doing wasn't working uh, to engage with men and to help them when they're experiencing psychological difficulties. So we thought we'd just try something different. Uh, and there's evidence to indicate that, that guys will turn to the Internet uh, first when they are looking for health information and self-help strategies when they're not feeling well. So we thought this might be a place where we can meet them and give them a space where it's clear that this is for men and about men. Because although there's a lot of pretty good depression resources that are out there already, none of them were oriented toward guys.
1: Turns out those qualities of self-reliance and strength are in fact keys to understanding mental illness in men.
3: You know, masculine socialization, how males are taught to be Boys and men. Uh, you know what does society say about how males should act? And you know we've all heard the you know big boys don't cry. Pull your boots up. Keep a stiff upper lip. Uh, you know don't show any weakness or vulnerability. You got to do it on your own, be a sturdy yoke, stork warrior, all this kind of stuff, you know. And so what does that communicate to guys? And it's like, okay, well, I need to rely on myself and, and always put the tough uh, face forward. And, you know, boys are all, and, and men are also shamed into conformity with this. Uh, you know, you could probably talk to 10 guys in your life and all 10 of them will share various types of experiences that particularly when they were young, they were shamed for not conforming in one way or another. And, and shame is a really hurtful thing. You know, even, you know, what might be posed as something very, you know, I'm putting air quotes playful, uh, jibes at one another, it it can be received as very hurtful. And so so boys learn fairly quickly how to fall in line often. And, you know, the, you know, I mentioned, uh, dude, on your own, that, that attitude around self-reliance is a real big thing. And in fact, there's a very large scale Australian study that found that self-reliance was the most significant predictor of suicidality amongst uh, men after accounting for all the other well-known predictors of suicidality. So, so it has a powerful role in men's lives.
1: Not seeking help. Trying to be that sturdy oak is dangerous.
3: Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of risk in sort of a rigid adherence to that attitude because you feel like you need to be able to fix things yourself, sort things out on your own. Inevitably, you can't. You know, when you're dealing with something significant like like depression, it's like you need other people in your life to help you with this. Uh, we all do, uh, but feeling like you you must do it on your own and inevitably becomes more severe, more chronic, and thus they get it becomes even more difficult for them to reach out because they feel even greater shame that they couldn't figure it out on their own. And so the ones that do ultimately reach out for help, they're often in some sort of crisis situation, but then many still don't.
1: I asked Dr. Ogranichek if the men he's worked with over the years talk about wanting to disappear. Here's what he had to
3: say. Making a suicide attempt is the, the ultimate act of escape, you know, and it's forever. You know, I think what you're suggesting is just disappearing for a while or maybe just disappearing and starting a new life. I I think a lot of people could probably resonate with that at some level you know when things get really tough and it feels like just you're getting knocked down from so many levels you you maybe just want a fresh start but you don't know how to do that and maybe it's just like I I, I disappear you know it feels like life has got away from them or or they're owned by their life you know like, I heard this one great quote that a a client shared with me that his priest told him, he he was a very well-to-do fellow and felt like his whole life was about maintaining this lifestyle. And it's like, first you own possessions and then possessions own you. And it feels like I've lost my autonomy and agency in life because I'm just living and working to keep this facade, if you will.
1: So what should friends and family members watch for in the men they know and love?
3: You know, men do have uh, a tendency to withdraw as a way perhaps to protect themselves or, or also maybe not really knowing how to engage with others for help. But, you know, sort of disconnecting from people around you, disconnecting from life, I think that ought to be a warning sign.
1: I ask about loneliness, a concern I've heard repeatedly in the missing men's
3: lives. Massive. Uh, one of the top stressors in men's lives is loneliness. And this is pre-COVID, uh, uh, the, the data I'm referring to. The other one is a lack of purpose or meaning in life. But, but loneliness is, is absolutely massive. Guys don't talk about it at all. Um, but I can tell you from from that kind of data and my own experience working with male clients for many, many years, loneliness is a huge issue.
1: One of the other characteristics I hear about some of the missing men is that they struggle with controlling their temper.
3: you know feeling helpless uh, is, is a, a real significant primer of of anger you feel helpless and you want to you know is sort of express that that anger or rage that that incites in a lot of people and maybe it's a way of exerting some sort of agency you know you act angrily uh, at something but also it, it I think often what's contributing to that is a sense of isolation or loneliness that you know you don't have others around you that necessarily sort of understand you you feel really alone in your sort of existential experience, if you will, uh, I think that could be a, a big part of it as well.
1: As I've spoken with families and tried to learn about the missing men's backgrounds, I've been struck by how many of the missing men came from divorced parent families. And so I ask, what, if anything, could that mean?
3: You know, we talk about the importance of having that maternal bond, which is that absolutely fundamental but often what gets lost in the conversation is the role that dads play and you know, dads play important roles that uh, being the male role model and sometimes that male role model is is not necessarily the best but by and large you know you know dads are good people too and dads have an important role to play in in helping their children develop uh, a full sense of self and and be confident and resilient and and feeling loved by people in their life. And without that role model in their life, I think there's a significant part missing. I've had many, many male clients bring up something along this kind of line where they often talk about, I've never had a a close male role model or a male mentor in my life. And they, they feel kind of lost because of that.
1: I've talked to the loved ones of each of the missing men about the possibility of suicide. In almost every case, family and friends just don't believe it's likely, and it seems that's not unusual.
3: Often the answer is no. Um, that's, That's not the case for everyone, of course. Sometimes the the loved ones of a guy who is contemplating suicide, feeling like, you know, death is his only escape from this immense pain that he's experiencing. They're aware of that, but but many, many times the people that are around them have no idea.
1: And so, Dr. Ogrodnicek says it's so important to talk.
3: Have a conversation with them. As, as difficult as it may be, do so it's so much better than not sharing your concern with them uh and and being in a position to help Uh, you know and ultimately you know i've heard from many families that uh lost somebody through suicide you know it's always i wish i wish i wish i did this i wish i did this Um, so don't miss the opportunity to have conversations. You know that's part of uh, on our Heads Up Guys website. We have a for friends and family section. We actually go through this. How do you even begin that conversation? So we give some, some tips and guidance around that. So if you don't know how to have that conversation, go to the website and find that out.
1: When a young man named Ben Kilmer vanished a few years back, his story, the mystery of what had happened to him and the search for clues gripped this island. But Ben Kilmer was found, and the coroner ruled his death a suicide. So is suicide a possible answer to the unsolved missing men cases here on the island? Of course, it can't be ruled out. In talking to family and friends of the men, I've been conscious of how lonely and isolated some of these men were in life. If there is a man in your world who's struggling, talk to them. Let them know they're not alone. There are resources out there that could help. Dr. Ogrodnicek's resource is HeadsUpGuys.org is a great place to start. That's HeadsUpGuys.org. Now, for the record, I don't believe suicide is the most likely outcome in any of the cases I've explored in this podcast series. But it is a possibility. And frankly, I would have felt irresponsible to not address the issue in the context of this podcast. When I began work on Gone Boys, I wanted to do three things. Raise the profile of Vancouver Island's missing men cases. Shine a light on the social context these disappearances are happening in. And... Open up a conversation about whether some of these missing men cases were homicides, which could be connected. This is not a series with a clear ending. There is no closure as yet for the families of these missing men, and there are many questions raised in this series which have yet to be answered. Next week, an update on the cases. In the meantime, if you have any information about any of the missing men's cases you've heard about in Gone Boys, I am reachable at laura at laurapalmer.ca. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Island Crime, Season 2, Gone Boys.